Welcome to Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. This programme features a talk from a conference that the WFA held with the British Commission for Military History on the 1st of April 2017. The British Commission for Military History is an organisation which aims to promote through research, publication and discussion an understanding of British military history. For more information about the BCMH, go to their website at bcmh.org.uk. The joint conference focused on the armies of 1917. It examined the military forces of the Allies and the Central Powers. In particular, it discussed their tactical and technical advances, the internal issues affecting each army, such as their morale, and also military operations such as the battles of Arras, Third Eep, and Cambrai. In this episode, Philip Prattley gives a talk on Irish soldiers one year on, the changes of 1917. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, you may see from my bio notes I hold an honours degree in engineering, and therefore I should be the last person allowed anywhere near the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, I'd like to speak um, about something which is hugely contentious, uh, and that is what the Irish were up to in 1917. But this isn't just going to be about 1917. It's not just going to be about Ireland. It's not just going to be about soldiers. Being Ireland, it's going to be politics. It's going to be repression, myth, splits, sacrifice, and deeply different forms of commemoration. Ten years ago, almost to the day, in June 2007, there was a conference in Dublin, mainly around writers and poets. John Horne was one of the chairmen, and he wrote that the conference was a further indication of the resurgence of interest of the Great War in Ireland. This, he said, is related to the peace process in Northern Ireland, which has unlocked more complex visions of the past. It's also due to the increased visibility of the Great War, following the end of the Cold War, as the seminal event in the cycle of violence and ideological extremism that marked the 20th century. The fact, (coughs) said John, that Ireland was deeply involved in the war is of fundamental importance to an understanding of its own place in European and international history. For those of us in the British Commission for Military History, those remarks are fairly uncontentious. Indeed, they are of the orthodoxy. In 2007 in Dublin, they were radical to the point of a new revolution. And that's because things change with time. The military have a habit of resetting time, H-hour, Zulu hour, D-Day. Engineers do it as well. If you think of a curve on a graph, the x-axis is time and t equals naught somewhere. But in Ireland, where does t equal naught? St. Patrick and the Snakes, Brian Baru, Wolf Tone, the first Home Rule Bill. Well, the problem is that you don't have a single t equals naught. And for Irish-born soldiers in the Western Front trenches, or on the Mesopotamian desert in 1917, they weren't in the third year of a war, they were in the first. And it took the better part of that first year for them to realise how completely things had changed. But for the two traditions in Ireland, the point of the change in 1916 was different. 
It wasn't just events on the front line, it was events on the home front, and it was the rebellion in Dublin. So for one tradition, the Catholic, the nationalist tradition, T equals naught was that rising. The exact date is almost immaterial. For the record, it was the 24th of April, 1916. But it wasn't the 24th of April. It was Easter Monday, and the Easter week rising became the seminal event in the foundation of the Irish Republic. A bunch of rebels declared the Irish Republic. A British army had to turn its attention from fighting the bigger European war to recapture the rebel strongholds throughout central Dublin, and they handed over to military rule. General Sir Charles Maxwell was brought across from the Middle East, and in his view, the way you dealt with these rebels was simple. You shot them. Well, you shoot them, or you execute them, or you murder them. You choose your verb. And the problem is that you can't not choose a verb, and by the verb you choose, you define where you're going to be in this debate. And that's the difficulty for the Irish soldiers in 1917. They were unavoidably defining themselves. Not just the living soldiers, but those who had died the year before on the Somme, or the year before that at Gallipoli. They too were now being defined differently in 1917, even before they had been commemorated. The Easter Rising of 1916 was, as marked last year by the (laughs) Irish government, the founding event Uh, around the Republic and British government starting with Gladstone working with Charles Stuart Parnell had been attempting a home rule bill for the better part of 30 years the failure had brought down governments had caused splits in the nationalist community and had brought about threats of violence and insurrection from the Ulster Protestants given strident representation by Sir Edward Carson as the First World War loomed into view as we see it in hindsight now the British cabinet (laughs) having passed a Home Rule Bill in Parliament and then suspended it for the duration of the war, was almost consumed at the prospect of imminent civil war in Ireland. Meanwhile, the British Army had its own opportunity to display political naivety amounting to crass incompetence. (laughs) Some officers were making clear that they would refuse any orders to move against the Protestants of Ulster, whose militia, the Ulster Volunteers, threatened to prevent Home Rule. And when the army command chain distorted an unmilitaried conversation in London into a threat that officers would lose their pensions if they were to disobey the orders, the result was the current mutiny and an odd foretaste of names who would future later in the war to come, Henry Wilson and Hubert Gough. And the other foretaste was that of the incompetence of Prime Minister Asquith, his vacillating inability to prevent the army doing what he thought he'd told them he didn't want them to do. Curra was an early example. In 1916, another was that Maxwell shot the Irish rebel leaders when Asquith wanted him not to. And a year later, although Asquith by then had been replaced by Lloyd George, some of those recurring names, not least Gough, appear to the army's disadvantage as the fifth army commander at Passchendaele. Now, home rule was actually the idea of a self-governing Irish nation ruled from Dublin but as a dominion of empire. And the guy who by then was the head of the Irish Parliamentary Party was watching this act passed into law in 1914 and seeing himself as the putative Prime Minister of a dominion. At which point, as the emphasis switched from finding militia volunteers for Protestant and uh, and Catholic, for uh, Unionist and Nationalist, to shifting for the British Army, the game changed. 
and it changed with political advantage. The party of nationalists had its own militia that could be offered, but as the corps went out from Kitchener to join the army and the 10th Irish division was being formed, both sets of political parties wanted to hold on to their militia to give them to the army only for political advantage. And although the 10th Irish division was formed successfully and it went out to Gallipoli where it took heavy casualties and it was largely a Catholic division, the Nationalist Party were hanging on to their volunteers and the Unionists were hanging on to theirs. The Nationalist Party's volunteers became the 16th Irish division and the Unionist volunteers, the Ulster volunteers, became the 36th. And both of them were overtly political decisions, overtly political divisions. For the Nationalists, the purpose in joining was slightly different from the Unionists. For the Nationalists, it was remember Belgium. Professor Tom Kettle, a Nationalist intellectual, a one-time Redmondite Westminster MP, is, as war breaks out, on an arms procurement trip to Belgium but does mean that he sees at first hand some of the German atrocities. And these become important compelling evidence in the nationalist recruiting lexicon. Redmond, though, sees that if his men can join up as a division, the 16th Division as it was to become, that would surely, would it not, strengthen the case for home rule. As nations which themselves had achieved dominion status, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, were sending their troops to reinforce the dominion status that they had, could not Ireland do the same thing? The Ulster Unionists saw a very compelling picture in the opposite direction. The reason for turning their volunteer militia to the British Army was to stop home rule. Already there was a whisper of some sort of partition, a deal to carve out the northeast of Ireland as a separate province. And so, for entirely contradictory reasons, the two sides both agree that their militia forces will join up. And other people had done so for different reasons. The Dublin Pals showed the Pals concept had its place in Ireland. In their case, the middle classes joined up under the aegis of the Rugby Football Union at Lansdowne Road and went to war in Gallipoli. So we have, then, the issue of 10th Division, 16th Division, 36th Division, and how many people have joined from Ireland. Uh, the answer is we don't really know. The accepted figure is around 200,000. Uh, Bill, in his book, Attrition, says that the casualty figures from Ireland were somewhere between 27 and 49,000, and they are hugely imprecise figures. You start with the problem of what is an Irishman. Is it someone who's fighting in an Irish named regiment? Is it someone who's born in Ireland? Is it someone of Irish parentage who's born in Liverpool? It can be any or all of those, and that's why some of the difficulties are there. But at the start of the war, some 30,000 Irishmen are in the British Army, and it's generally accepted that around 200,000 served in total. The clever thing, perhaps, was the divisional commanders of these overtly political divisions had to be people who understood the sensitivities. After a false start, the British did get it right in 16th Division with Major General William Hickey, and arguably Oliver Nugent was a characteristic reflection of his own divisional command in 36th Division. So if that's the case as the war gets going, which war are we talking about? Because if T equals naught at Easter Monday for the nationalists the problem for the Unionists as they need to redefine their purpose and their starting point. And it was to demonstrate their commitment to the King and their deep Britishness of Unionist Ulster that they looked at sealing it with a blood sacrifice, and of course the blood sacrifice that they had already made when they were looking at this in early 1917 was on the 1st of July the previous year. 
July was already a month of huge significance to Unionists celebrating good King Billy, William of Orange, at the Battle of the Boyne, and there seemed to be a symbiotic relationship between the rivers of the Boyne and the Somme. And so the blood sacrifice, as it became seen, of the 36th Ulster Division at Chiefval's Schaben Redoubt on the 1st of July 1916 became the T equals naught for Unionists. Different places for T equals naught, and T equals naught for the Unionists in a way that reinforces their political purpose, but the Easter Rising, T equals naught for the Nationalists, undermines their political purpose, and from that point the Redmondite Nationalists are in some difficulty, and arguably for the rest of the century it is these events that set the context for Ireland, and possibly the only revolution to take place in Europe after the First World War that wasn't characterised by discussions at the Paris Peace Conference was in Ireland. So where does that then leave these two divisions with their contradictory purposes and awkward resonance throughout 1916 by the time they get to the battles of 1917? And at Messines Ridge, the centre of the British line, capturing the centre of the Messines Ridge position, is the 36th and the 16th Divisions side by side, a re resolution in shared service and sacrifice. 16th Division hadn't got out to France until December 1915, concerns over their loyalty and whether nationalists could fight, but they took on the heart of the German defence side by side at the crest of that ridge, and I'm going to read you a few words from a remarkable Irish academic, Terence Denman, who about a quarter of a century ago started looking at this in a time where it took not just historical intellectual analysis, but I would argue some moral courage to do so as well. Uh, Terence writes, The victory of the Irishman was far more significant than may at first appear, with Dublin men going into the barrage, touching the shoulders with their comrades of the Orange Lodge in North Ulster. A Belfast Unionist officer wrote home, it is no lie to say that the best possible relationships exist between the Irish division and our fellows. I know for a fact that the Ulster division would prefer to fight alongside them than any other in the British army. It was not without its cost. But Messines was a success, and in 1998, on the right of this slide, that peace tower was inaugurated uh, close to, but in best Irish fashion, not actually on, the site where the two divisions had met, because the nationalist Paddy Hart and the Unionist Glen Bar were looking for something to be important and symbolic. But then we go to Frasenburg. Again, the third... <coughs> Uh, sorry, the 36th and the 16th Divisions fight side by side, but in a battle which can in no way be characterised as a success. And up at Passchendaele itself was a reminder of the regular battalions, the 2nd Munsters, as part of the 1st Division, are taking the very northern part of the Passchendaele Ridge on the 10th of November in what are now iconically dreadful conditions. But the problem with Frasenburg Ridge, the problem with Passchendaele, is that there's no specific event resonant enough around which to produce a renewed degree of commemoration. And this becomes a huge problem for their nationalist division because they cannot point to something which is uniquely Irish about what they're doing on the Western Front, whereas the rebels, who were helpfully, to their view, shot by the British in 1916, can point to the specific Irishness of the Easter Rising. Well, it's Ireland. He's a politician, he's a priest, and he's a poet. Um, the politician is Willie Redmond. 
Willie Redmond is the younger brother of John Redmond, the leader of the Irish party, and Willie is himself an MP. He decides he needs to go to war. The British Army isn't delighted with this, as he's in his mid-50s, and the divisional commander, William Hickey, can see a huge disadvantage, because if Hickey tells him to stay out of the front line, the accusation back home is that Willie Redmond is a coward, and if Hickey lets him in the front line, the likelihood is that he might get hit. And sadly, on the 7th of June, 1917, at the opening day of the Messines Ridge battle, that is what happens, and Willie Redmond is hit by a shell splinter. He is rescued by stretcher bearers from the Ulster Division. He's taken to an Ulster hospital, and when he dies there, the Ulstermen, with enormous care, take his body to the nearby convent, which is where, today, Willie Redmond still lies buried. He left a sealed message, which was found in Ireland. I should like my friends to know, wrote Willie Redmond, that in joining the Irish Brigade and going to France, I sincerely believed, as all Irish soldiers do, that I was doing my best for the welfare of Ireland in every way. The death of Willie Redmond MP, his name now carved alongside that of Tom Kettle on the memorial to members of the House of Commons who died in the First World War. The death of Willie Redmond MP occasioned a by-election. That by-election was won by Eamon de Valera. It was another indication of the problems that the nationalists were having. The second guy down there is Padre Willie Doyle. Father Willie Doyle, MC, Society of Jesus, one of many Jesuit Catholic priests on the Western Front who showed enormous courage in going to the wounded, uh, not just to bring the wounded in, but actually to stay under fire and administer the last rites. Um, Willie Doyle was venerated throughout both of the divisions from Ireland, both 36 and 16. And when Willie Doyle was hit on the Frasenberg Ridge uh, on the 16th of August 1917, the Ulster Division were the stretcher bearers that rescued him in exactly the same way that the Ulster Division stretcher bearers had rescued Willie Redmond just the month and a half before. So here we have some thoughts on Willie Doyle, a Catholic priest, and that's a Catholic priest in a slightly strange position as well, because he believed that the reason that his soldiers, and he saw them, his soldiers, fought so well, was the depth of their Catholic faith. Here are some words from an Ulster Division officer. Father Doyle was a good deal among us. We couldn't possibly agree with his religious opinions, but we simply worshipped him for other things. He didn't know the meaning of fear, and he didn't know what bigotry was. He was as ready to risk his life to take a drop of water to a wounded Ulsterman as to assist men of his own faith and regiment. The Ulsterman felt his loss keenly, and none were readier to show their marks of respect. The third guy down here is a poet who has been brought back to prominence by the work of arguably the most important Irish poet of the 20th century, possibly one of the most important of the... English language poets of the 20th century, Seamus Heaney, who brought, who brought Ledwidge back to, um, back to prominence. But the problem with poets is that they're not really necessarily very good historians. And I'd just like to go through a few words from that remarkable man, Keith Jeffrey. Um, Keith points out that if you're going to ask a poet to be a historian, you have a problem. Wisely, perhaps, writes Geoffrey, military historians have been a little bit suspicious of poets and other such literary folk in general. 
Literary criticism is admirable, but as history, rather less so. I am, however, guilty of the same sin, and I do not think that historians should refuse to use poetry as evidence simply because it is poetry, though it should always perhaps be treated with caution. In Ireland, in any case, we tend to conflate poetry with history and politics more readily than our more reticent English neighbours, among whom I presume we number ourselves. Which takes us to Ledwich, a working-class poet who was extremely sympathetic to the nationalist cause, extremely sympathetic to the Republican cause, torn between the two, and a number of his best friends were among the 16 killed by the English in April 1916. Ledwidge wrote, I joined the British Army because what she stood, she, the British Army, she stood between Ireland and an enemy common to our civilization. And I would not have her say that she defended us while we did nothing but sit at home and pass resolutions. A politicised poet, I feel that we still don't really appreciate or understand properly today. How do we then go on to commemoration? The commemoration of the Great War in Ireland is a matter of repression for the better part of 75 years. So while we mark the centenary of 1917, it would be fair to say that our Irish counterparts mark only a quarter of a century of historical analysis. This is the one place in Ireland where the three divisions are commemorated. It's a window in the Guildhall in Derry. Um, and here is an example of how other commemoration can be distorted. It's a gable end, and some of you will recognise it, of a house in East Belfast. We also have seen of late the most magnificent restoration of the Island Bridge memorial to uh, the Irish dead of the Great War, and that remarkable man, Kevin Myers, who, who wrote the chapters in the uh, follow-on book, uh, The Army Battlefield Guide, has commented on this as well. I think it's one of the most extraordinary um, scenes now, but when Kevin went there on his bicycle in 1979, apparently it was completely derelict. And when I saw it in the mid-'80s, it wasn't much better. And I'd like to conclude by comparing two soldiers, not from the 16th and 36th, but from the 16th and the 41st Southern and Home Councils Division. Private James Furphy was one of five brothers or cousins, and he was killed on the first day of the Messines Ridge Battle. Private William Fricker from Richmond, 11th Battalion, the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment, killed on the first day of Third Yeap. They had nothing in common at the time of their death. But the sister of... James Furphy, and the younger brother of William Fricker are my grandparents. And so what I have in common with those two is that I'm their great-nephew. And I can go to all sorts of places where William Fricker is commemorated in local memorials, in regimental memorials, at his school. And the only place where James Furphy is commemorated as James Furphy in name is at Vormozil Cemetery Number 3, uh, in Ypres. He was his body was, was recovered. The, the names are still being put together. And so I'd like to end by offering, if I may, my thanks to those remarkably courageous Irish academics who've looked at this, not least Richard Doherty, who pointed out to me that Furphy could be spelled in any one of four ways, and if I was looking for my grandmother's brothers and cousins, I would need to look for all four. And he was absolutely right. <laughs> Thank you. You 
have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.